Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The second reading is from Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way because about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Amen. Love in the workplace. That's what I felt led to entitle this sermon this morning. Sounds a little bit like the title of a trashy or racy novel that people want to take off the bookshelves if they know the minister's going to come and call. And that's part of the problem about trying to live as a Christian outside the home, outside the four walls of church. At home, we know we're expected to love each other. It's kind of obligatory. In church, we know that Jesus calls us to love each other. We may not do a very good job of it sometimes, but at least we are in agreement that love should be a vital ingredient in our relationships with other members of our family and with our friends in church. But love outside the family, love outside the church, loving a colleague at work, how does that sound? Sends out all kinds of strange signals. 
as does love in the shopping centre, love on the allotment, love in the football team. It avoids a whole wagon load of misunderstanding if love is kept at home and in the church. Mind you, even in church, it can sometimes be a bit risky. No wonder, then, that Paul prays for the Christian believers in Philippi that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and in depths of insight. Because if love is to extend beyond the church and beyond the family, we need to understand what love is really all about and how it works. And so wise people have rightly said that love here does not denote feelings of affection as much as a love which entails placing a high value on somebody else and which is expressed in actively seeking their benefit. So it's not about how I feel, how emotionally close I am to somebody else. It's inevitable that with some people we will feel closer to them than we will with others. But we are commanded to love everybody without discrimination as God loves us and as we love ourselves. So clearly this idea of love has to have everything to do with how we treat other people, maybe even irrespective of how we might feel towards them. To love someone in this sense is to promote their well-being, to make time for them, to engage with them, to build them up, to assure them of their value and importance, not just in God's eyes, but in our eyes. And not just being of value and important because they can fulfil some kind of prescribed role, but but as individuals in their own right. It will affect how we listen when people talk to us, what we say and how we say it, when we are talking to them. And, as well, what we say and how we say it when we are talking about them. And they're not there. Clearly that cannot and should not interfere with the roles that we occupy. At work, there are always tasks to be done and targets to be met. In a football team, there is a match to be played. In the shopping centre, there are transactions to be conducted. But whatever it is that we're doing, we are called to express an attitude of love, that kind of love, in the way that we do it. And that, of course, is far from easy. But then Jesus never, ever said it would be easy to follow him, did he? And it's especially hard when, in the real world, we have to take decisions that will have an adverse effect on the lives of others. The greater the degree of responsibility you hold in the workplace, or any other place, for that matter, where people are involved, the more, sooner or later, you will have to make difficult decisions that will affect other people's lives negatively the hard decision to make someone redundant, for example. The decision whether a family's application for asylum should be accepted. The decision about whether or not to turn a blind eye when someone is doing something wrong. What do you do as someone who is called to love when you know that the decision you take actually is is going to be detrimental to somebody else? Because in the real world, life is always full of hard choices and tough decisions, and sometimes there is only a range of bad options to choose from. And then temptation in those circumstances is to dehumanise the people affected, to harden your hearts against them, to regard them merely as one more set of statistics on a page to take the decision and to blank out any consideration of the consequences that these people will have to cope with. 
These are the standard ways of dealing with such situations. You don't see them as people, you see them as objects, numbers, statistics, problems to be dealt with. Yet for the Christian, it may be that part of taking up the cross and following Jesus in a, is a, in a sinful and broken world is to carry something of the burden and pain that our decisions cause other people. So if we take the tough decision, we don't wash our hands of it, think that's done, it's dealt with, I'm going to forget about it, but actually we recognise the effect that it has on them. We might be moved to pray for them as a result. It should certainly affect how we deal with them. Trying to find ways of mitigating the damage that the tough decisions will cause. We still may have to take those hard and difficult decisions, but the human cost of them will always form part of our thinking and consideration in taking that decision and in figuring out how it is implemented. You see, the call to be loving isn't, oh, it's the easy way out for weak people. The call to be loving, actually, is to bear the full cost of the difficult decisions that have to be made. And it's tough. And it's for strong people but it's for people who follow Jesus who bore the weight of the sin and the evil and the suffering on his shoulders when he went to the cross. We don't duck out of the difficult choices, but we make them in a spirit and an attitude of love. Because sometimes the hard thing is the right thing to do. And if we have to take that kind of decision as a follower of Jesus, we will also look for the right way to do it. Thomas Aquinas said, all things that are done by us must be informed by charity. Therefore, a person with charity has a correct judgment, both in regard to things knowable and in regard to things to be done. And building on this, Stephen Fowle says in his commentary on Philippians, if we are to follow Aquinas and ultimately Paul in this, we shall have to shift our notions of love away from the overly romantic and sensibilized versions of love so common in our current culture. Instead, he says, we should see love as a habit. Love needs to become an established disposition within us. This doesn't simply happen overnight. Rather, love becomes a habit for us as we undergo spiritual formation. Over time, through prayer, contemplation and action, we become loving people. To the extent that such a disposition becomes stable within us, we have developed that kind of love. Then that love informs our judgments and actions so that they generate knowledge and moral wisdom. That is why time spent in the presence of Christ is indispensable when it comes to living out our faith in practical ways for him during the week. Time allowing his word to inform our hearts and our minds so that we do become like fruitful trees planted by streams of water. So we recognise the presence of God in our situations and we find the loving, the right way of doing what we're called to do because the habit of acting in a loving manner needs careful cultivation. Doesn't happen automatically, doesn't happen easily. If we are to be like green trees that always bear fruit in God's service, we need to be people who take the time to place his word at the centre of our hearts and minds so that he can inform and direct both what we do and how we do it. So that love leads to knowledge and moral discernment. And out of that flows action and the words that we say.
It's a matter of being still and knowing that God is God. And one of the key tests of the quality of our attitude to other people has to be how we respond to them when they don't agree with us or we don't get our own way. That's why Paul goes on to talk about discerning what is best so that we can be pure and blameless until the day of Christ in verse 10. A more literal translation would be so that you can test the different options with a view to determining which is the best one. Establishing what is really at stake. Determining what are the overriding considerations here. And to do so in a way that does not compromise your own integrity or give unnecessary offence or difficulties to others. What is the most loving thing to do? And clearly we are talking about the wisdom of Solomon here, finding the delicate path that leads the right way through a tangle of options. What I think about them, what you think about them, and finding a way somehow for our ability to shake hands amicably and agree to disagree at the end. Yet if knowledge and discernment are really grounded in the habit of love, then that's the course of action that we are called to pursue in the workplace, at home, and in church as well. You see, I think by trying to figure out what Paul means about love outside the safety zones of home and work, I think we actually arrive at a more challenging notion of what it means to be loving at home and at church. To live a life of love has to go a lot deeper than being nice to people. Where there's a conflict of opinion, in the words of 1 Corinthians, love will not be rude or self-seeking. It will not be easily angered. It will keep no record of wrongs. Love values truth more than winning an argument or getting your own way. And love never stops trying to protect others from harm, building bridges of trust and hoping, hoping and working towards a good outcome. And we need to keep on doing this because the day of Christ is Judgment Day, the appraisal to end all appraisals, where not just our performance, but our motives, our attitudes, everything that lies behind the decisions that we've taken, all these things will be assessed in the cold light of day. And what is the criterion against which we will all have to measure up? The sole basis on which our lives will be judged will be how have you acted in accordance with love. And if Paul's prayer is answered in our lives so that our love does abound more and more in all knowledge and in depths of insight, so that we do discern the things that really matter and we act with integrity and with a view to the outworking of the effect of our decisions on others, then we will be blameless up to and including that day. That was Paul's prayer for the Philippians and as your pastor, I guess it needs to be my prayer for you as well. And indeed our prayer for each other. Because, of course, the grace to do all this ultimately comes from God. Contrary to popular belief, God does not set impossibly high targets for us with the precise intention of making sure that we all fail. He does resource us to live the kind of lifestyle he calls us to live. So that by his grace, through his word, through his presence with us and the anointing of the Spirit, we can end up being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God enables what he requires through Christ as we draw on the resources of his grace.
And I'm aware that perhaps some of you are feeling a bit uncomfortable this morning. You're rummaging through your life, looking for the fruit of righteousness, trying to find perhaps a a few scraps of love or moral understanding or integrity and not finding much. But remember that these aren't qualities that we're capable of generating by ourselves. They are cultivated and developed over time. But it does start with love. And if love is missing, that's usually because the people who should have filled our hearts with love have either failed to do so or have betrayed us. But today, we have a chance to ask God to plant a fresh seed of his love in our hearts to begin to change us from the core of our being, from the inside out. And that seed of love can be nurtured by spending time with God and his word, allowing the never-failing flow of his spirit to fill our hearts and our minds, and in very small ways, to direct our responses to other people. Try to figure out what it feels like not to insist on getting my own way. Taking the big step of admitting it when we get it wrong. Forgiving other people when they get it wrong and hurt or upset you. Small but significant decisions like that foster the growth of that seed so that it begins to put out the green leaves of understanding and discernment and then to develop the fruit of righteousness. The righteousness that means that, hey, you're okay in your relationships. You're okay with God. You're okay with other people. You're okay with yourself. This isn't something that we can do ourselves, especially if we've been wounded emotionally in the past. But it is something that God can do. It is something that God wants to do. And it is something that God will do if you allow him gently to take charge of your heart and your mind and your life. Because from the core of your being outwards, by his Holy Spirit, he will cultivate that seed of love and allow it to grow and to develop the knowledge and understanding that you need to bear the fruit of righteousness. God, for his part, is more than willing and more than able to do this. It's a messy world out there. We all know that. But God wants to equip you with what you need to live for him in a way that's right in his eyes and with others in it. Starts with allowing God to plant his seed within our hearts and minds and our part in allowing it to grow. It starts this morning with our saying yes to God. Into my heart. Into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus.